Hello and welcome to another episode of the Radix Research Podcast, where multifamily industry experts join us to discuss macro trends, cover key operating procedures, and share localized insights impacting the apartment market. Radix is a full-scale multifamily data provider tracking leading operating indicators from the unit level all the way to the national level. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radix Multifamily Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Chris Bruin, Senior Director of Research at NMHC, the National Multifamily Housing Council. Chris has been a researcher in the multifamily industry for a number of years, and Chris and I have talked for uh, quite a while about the different challenges facing the multifamily industry, specifically uh, around affordability. Um, Certainly one of the big challenges that we faced before the pandemic, Uh, I think affordability perhaps took a little bit of a backseat in terms of the public eye around the pandemic and, and when rents uh, began falling, um, but is certainly starting to become a key topic and a key discussion point for many across multifamily, uh, again, as, as rents have increased so quickly. And in light of other inflationary aspects of the economy, uh, affordability and housing affordability is certainly becoming a hotbed issue once again. So I'm thrilled to be joined today by Chris Bruin. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Chris, as we've been talking about affordability, rent control and affordability, again, were, were major topics before uh, before the pandemic. What's going on right now in terms of affordability? Is it still a national topic? Is it more regionalized? Is it more localized? Well, yeah, I, I think all of the above. Uh, you know, affordability definitely is not a new issue. We typically measure affordability by looking at the share of apartment households who are paying more than 30% of their income on on rent. We call them cost-burdened households. That share has been increasing pretty steadily over time. In uh, in, in 1985, 42.4% of apartment households were were burdened, uh, and that rose to nearly 55% in 2019. And affordability has manifested in, in, in other metrics as well. We, we've also seen a rising share of young adults who are living at home, especially in the past 10, 15 years. Uh, and a lot of that is due to affordability. We've also seen home prices rise. You could cut it in, in a number of ways, but kind of by any measure, this has been a growing issue. And as you mentioned, uh, we saw in 2020 rents actually decrease somewhat, especially smaller units in more expensive urban coastal markets. We saw a shift in demand toward more sunbelt markets, higher growth rates there, especially larger units. Over the past year, though, we've really seen high rent growth in all markets, and we've, we've, we've seen those coastal markets uh, recover. And I, I think it is important when talking about rent growth to keep that perspective of, of that the two-year horizon. So nationally, when we saw year-over-year rent growth peak in the first quarter, you know, a lot of that growth uh, was a recovery from 2020. So what I like to do is, is kind of take a two-year average to get a better feel for exactly how high that was. So it's more upper 6 or 7% r- rent increase on average over those two years, which definitely is, is still elevated over prior years, but maybe not as extreme as 15, 16% figure suggests. And also shows we wouldn't expect annual growth to continue at, at that rate. And that's a national growth rate that you're talking about, a 6 to 7% average 
national growth rate over the past two years. What about certain markets, you know, as you mentioned, the, the Sunbelt, Florida markets, Texas markets, we've seen just astronomical rent growth in, in Miami and Orlando and Tampa, across Austin, even Phoenix. I know Phoenix is starting to slow down a little bit and, and has been for some time now. But w- what are you seeing from an affordability perspective, really at the market by market level? One of the reasons why some of those Sunbelt markets were high, I mean, some of those markets were very popular even prior to the pandemic. But uh, when the pandemic hit and people were no longer tethered to uh, their workplace, some of those markets were relatively more affordable. So it was a more affordable option to them than as demand increases there. That, you know, puts a lot of pressure on the existing apartment residents. Right. So when we think about affordability, uh, a lot of people in, in this industry might say, well, you know, we've got an easy solution. Let's just build more. Right. But what are some of the, the challenges in increasing supply that might prohibit us from just building more to, to build our way out of the affordability issue? You know, on, on the one hand, so we have seen completions uh, at a higher rate in recent years. However, a lot of that was simply making up for a lot of the shortfall in construction immediately after the uh, great financial crisis. And so we, we kind of ha- ha- have to make up a lot of lost ground there. And on top of the current shortfall, our recent demand research that we uh, put out, this NMHC and NAA research conducted by Hoyt Advisory Services, estimates that we'll need to build a total of 4.3 million new apartments by 2035. And, and that, that includes both the current shortfall and additional units we would need to, to accommodate uh, future demands and losses to the stock. So yes, yeah, so on the one hand, I think this higher rent growth has, has spurred higher construction, but not as much as we would have liked. And we, uh, you could also see that the units under construction has really risen relative to completion, which suggests that construction times are increasing as well. So uh, on some of the barriers to construction, uh, one obstacle is regulations. We recently put out research, a joint survey by both NMHC and the National Association of Home Builders, which found that an average of 40.6% of multifamily development costs can be attributed to regulation. Obviously, some of that is necessary, but some of it is not. And to the degree to which that regulation is unnecessary, it just imposes an additional cost and obstacle to development. Some other findings from that survey were 43.8% of respondents said that their typical project was in a jurisdiction with uh, inclusionary zoning, which requires developers to offer a certain number of apartments at below market rents. And that requirement necessitates uh, higher rents uh, on their other units, at which respondents said they they typically had to offer 7.6% higher rents on average to compensate them for that. Nearly half of the developers in that survey said they avoid building in jurisdictions with inclusionary zoning. And nearly 88% said they avoid working in jurisdictions uh, with rent control. Related to those regulations are just more general barriers uh, from NIMBY opposition. Three quarters of the developers surveyed in that study said they, they encountered NIMBY opposition to proposed developments. And they said that confronting that opposition adds an average of 5.6% 
to their total development costs and delays completion of, of new projects by an average of 7.4 months. So definitely some, some heavy regulatory barriers. Is it easy or, or is it as simple as saying the high regulation areas, the coasts, the Northeast, California, builders are going away uh, from those markets and going towards the Sun Belt, going towards the center of the country? Or is it more nuanced than that? Is it really city by city, state by state, where you're seeing some of these regulatory challenges? I, th- I think as a general rule, though, typically those more, the coastal cities tend to have more inelastic supplies, more barriers to construction. We have seen some promising developments in, in some of those states. For instance, California passed a law last year allowing property owners to add additional units to the, to their lots. I think up to of, of, up to four units on what was formerly uh, their single family residence. And uh, also in California, the two bills passed last week. One allows developers to build on parcels of land that are zoned uh, for commercial use. Uh, and another overrides minimum parking requirements that are imposed by many local governments. Interesting. So it does sound like there's there's some progress being made, even even in the traditionally highly regulated markets. One one question that comes to mind, you know, as I'm thinking through the development that, that you're talking about and some of the research that you've done, are we building the right type of housing? Uh, and you mentioned a lot of the renters by choice. Uh, perhaps those are retiring baby boomers who are moving back into traditional multifamily. Do we have the right type of housing stock that's being built for the millennials, for the Generation Z? Are, are we focusing, are, are developers focusing, I should say, on the right types of housing? I guess that's, that's difficult to answer because these generations are so diverse. And so I, I don't know if you have any thinking here, if, if you suspect that there's a certain type of housing that is in shorter supply. You know, I, I don't know. And I'm not coming coming at this from any particular bias. I, I wonder, I, I've seen a number of statistics that we're, we're in a housing shortage. We're in a for sale housing shortage. We're in a for rent housing shortage. We're in a multifamily housing shortage. We're in a single family housing shortage. I was just curious if, you know, if you and any of the research that your team has been working on has come up with anything in terms of the, the type of housing that we're building. I'm sure given cost of regulation and, and cost of supplies and so forth, it may be advantageous to build a certain type of housing versus another. But I was just curious if, if your work with the National Association of Home Builders had, had come up with anything to say, hey, we should be building more single family or we should be building more multifamily. Newer housing in general tends to be more expensive than older stock. Um, but, you know, it, that's, all re- that's all related because if you build that, that higher end housing, then that frees up some of that more affordable stock as well. In terms of like the single family versus a multifamily, I, I think the demand is just so broad based that we really need all of the above. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so that kind of leads into another question I had is, is this issue of affordability getting the recognition it deserves at the, at the national level? You know, we, we've seen a number of uh, different initiatives from different administrations, but none of them seem to to really move the needle on housing. Is our industry uh, getting the recognition it perhaps deserves? 
Well, there could always be more done there, right? Uh, we, we have seen recently Biden administration's uh, housing supply action plan, which aims to reward uh, jurisdictions that have re- reformed zoning and land use policies with higher scores and certain federal grant processes. But I, I think more can be done both at the federal and state level. Uh, I, I think we have advocated for increased funding of of housing vouchers for that program to be reformed, to um, encourage participation from more of our members. And also, I I think that reminds me, speaking of vouchers and and also speaking of of zoning, that the the issue of affordability is really both one of supply and demand. There was a piece I wrote a few months ago where I really dug into the different types of cost burden uh, apartment households. And I looked at for uh, any given household, what share of units they could afford locally versus nationally. Using that metric, I was able to divide burdened households into kind of three categories. And there was the group that uh, really were only burdened because of where they lived. In other words, they had income where if they had lived in a different part of the country, uh, they would not have been burdened or they could have afforded a much higher share of apartments elsewhere. So for, for that group, really, it's the barriers to supply in their markets, which are holding them back. Uh, there's also a pretty large share of uh, U.S. apartment households that uh, have such low incomes that regardless of where they live, they are going to be burdened. And so really they are going to need uh, some sort of demand side assistance. Obviously supply would ease their burden somewhat, even if they would still pay over that 30% threshold. So you talk a lot about cost burden. Are there any markets or any regions of the country where we actually see a, a healthy supply of naturally affordable housing I recently recently ran kind of the uh, the share of burdened apartment households by metro, and I, I think the the results might be a bit surprising. I, I don't know if you if you would be able to predict like what what would be the highest markets there. And so, if you were to ask where where are we seeing the the least amount of affordability, the most cost burden, I would I would probably guess uh, places like New York, places like San Francisco. Perhaps Los Angeles, uh, traditionally the more expensive and, and coastal markets. Yeah, and and what was interesting is that it's very varied. Actually, uh, you know, some of the more burdened markets were expensive. You know, uh, Riverside, California, Miami, uh, Los Angeles was on that you know top ten. But then you you have some other markets too that kind of don't fit that typical narrative. Uh, and you also have some very expensive markets with. Which with much lower shares of burdened apartment households. Washington, D.C., for instance, was kind of on the lower end of uh, metros in ter- terms of share of apart- uh, burdened apartment households. Uh, San Francisco, actually, surprisingly low share. And you, you have to keep in mind, some of these markets also have you know, very high incomes. So that's why these, these metrics are useful, but they could also be tricky because I think what they don't show are the number of people who just don't live in that metro uh, because of uh, affordability constraints. And especially when you talk about metros like New York or San Francisco, where you have high, high incomes, some of the more productive areas of the country where you, you really want people to be able to move there, those higher average rents are uh, problematic. 
Good point. So, Chris, we've talked a lot about the supply side. Uh, and I know we've touched briefly on the demand side, but I know uh, you and your team over at NMHC have just wrapped up a, a pretty significant demand study. Um, any big high-level takeaways uh, from that demand study that, that you can share with us? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the, the larger takeaway was our estimate that we will need to build 4.3 million new apartments by 2035, which includes a current shortfall of 600,000 units. But included in that analysis are several assumptions about immigration. And the, uh, the baseline estimate of immigration going forward is actually uh, lower than the, their previous estimate the last time we uh, conducted this study. So uh, if we saw a surprise on the upside, immigration kind of returned to prior growth rates, that number could be much higher I think it's just important to keep in mind that that's kind of our best case scenario. That's our, our, our best, the best guess. There's obviously a range there. Absolutely. Uh, and in that demand study, was any of the analysis or any of the research focused at the market level uh, in terms of where demand is being located um, or, or is it more at the national level? Yes, we actually have that uh, by market, and I could look at some of the stats for you because I don't have it all committed to memory. I want to, uh, I'll check myself, but I want to say, like, you know, the bulk of that demand we expect to see in states like Texas, California. Yeah, I, I, I know I'm missing uh, one of the high growth states there, but I can look that up for you. Okay, great. And Chris, if uh, if our listeners want to access any of the research that NMHC and your team has done recently. Is it available for public consumption or has it been published? Yes. Yeah. Our, our demand research, our cost of regulations survey, this is all available on our website, uh, nmhc.org. And actually to respond to your prior question, uh, the demand research estimates that uh, t- uh, the combination of Texas, Florida, and California will account for uh, 40% of future demand and will require 1.5 million new apartments by 2035. 1.5 million apartments across those three states alone. Yeah. It's an interesting mix because we hear Florida and Texas certainly a lot, um, both from a growth perspective as well as from a development perspective, some of the easier states to develop in, but but also California. Uh, Oftentimes the narrative around California is the exodus or the out-migration, but it sounds like from the analysis that you've done actually – um, the demand will will remain in California and, and will face a continued housing shortage um, in in uh, California as we move forward. Right. Well, as you know, there's kind of uh, you know demand and supply are related in, in that sense, though. That if if you don't accommodate that new demand, then people may go elsewhere to a certain extent. You know, it'll it'll manifest itself with higher prices and and fewer actual households. So, yeah, that that's a good point. Chris, one of the areas that's been discussed quite a bit recently is construction delays and increasing construction costs. Do you have any research or data surrounding increasing construction costs or increasing labor costs? Yeah, I guess the one thing I haven't touched on yet, we also have been conducting a quarterly construction survey, uh, surveying leading multifamily construction and development firms on price of materials that they're seeing and labor availability. Our most recent survey was in June. The respondents in June actually saw the price of lumber go down 
a bit, 5% on average in the second quarter. But that was after they saw lumber prices go up 45% in the first quarter. You can take a look at the survey that uh, we asked those respondents about a number of materials, price of number of materials, most of which have, have, have really seen steep uh, price increases over the past year or two. And also uh, in, in, in just in this past iteration in June, 40% of respondents reported labor costs uh, having increased more than expected and labor being less available than the prior three months. So to sum that up, higher cost of materials, higher costs of labor, and I guess the third thing in there would be the higher cost of capital with higher interest rates makes uh, the development process uh, a little bit more difficult to pencil out. It helped to have those higher rents um, for you know a little bit there to offset some of those higher costs. But as we see rent growth moderate, uh, development could certainly be challenged if some of those costs don't come down. Absolutely. And, and you kind of mentioned three specific headwinds there, interest rates, labor and, and materials. You know, as I think through that, I, I don't know that the interest rates are going to be coming down anytime soon. We've seen pretty, pretty steadfast uh, devotion from the Fed to increasing interest rates. Um, certainly a lot of construction loans are, are tied to floating rates that, that are tied to LIBOR, the Fed funds rate, uh, SOFR and, and so forth. And the labor and the materials uh costs might not be increasing, but but I don't necessarily see them decreasing in the in the foreseeable future either. So, you know, when we talk about needing to add a significant number of units, needing to add four, 4.3, almost four and a half million units over the next 12 years, 12 to 15 years, I, I could see those headwinds certainly working against the development community and, and perhaps leading to continued uh, affordability challenges, because I, I don't know that demand is going to weaken necessarily. Uh, you talked about immigration and perhaps increasing immigration. Um, I, I certainly see the demand for housing maintaining itself uh, over the next over the next decade and, and more. So certainly some challenges ahead for, for our industry and, and the development industry as well. Definitely. And I, I think that just highlights the importance of addressing supply kind of on the regulatory front and through more accommodative uh, zoning, uh, because if we fail to do so uh, and the price of housing continues to, to increase, we know how the Federal Reserve will respond to that. And ultimately, we'll have to keep raising the rates until they kind of destroy demands through higher cost of housing. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you again for joining us. This has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the program today. Um, again, I've been joined by Chris Bruin, Senior Director of Research at the National Multifamily Housing Council. For more information, you can go to nmhc.org to access all of NMHC's research and publications. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Radix Research Podcast. For more information on Radix's suite of multifamily data products, please go to radix.com or reach out to me at chris.nebenzal at radix.com. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion, and we welcome your feedback on any of the topics we've covered. Thank you, and we hope you join us again soon.